primitivo is a fun one to talk about <laughs> yes, on that is. note. So related to Zinfandel, they both come mm-hmm. from the same parent. They look very similar. Uh, they taste pretty similar, but there are some... I think there are some pretty strong differences. I was able to actually go to uh, Manduria in Puglia for a week and talk to a lot of people there. California's Infidel tends to be very fruit-forward. Browned, maybe spicy, leathery, peppery, but definitely sort of fruit-first. The Primitivos from Puglia are a little more like tar and herb, a little more old world, a little more rustic, even when you have like this high alcohol, fully ripe thing, which is really kind of fascinating, given how closely related they are. But best way is to think about Primitivo and Zinfandel being separated in about the 1800s. Zinfandel comes over to the U.S., starts developing its own, you know, Grapes are kind of inbred. Sure. They've, they've got all sorts of genetic little things that happen. And there are, I think, about 45 different clones of Zinfandel now. And they really vary. I've seen some of the Lodi ones. Bunches this big, bunches this big. Mm. Leaves that look like this. Different growing habits. It's amazing, the diversity. There are maybe six different Primitivo types in the U.S. And we actually have some Zinfandel right next to our Primitivo, and I can't tell the difference until mm. it gets really mm. close to harvest, and that's Duprat's Infidel. So, intertwined history, same parents, Srilianic uh, Castellansky, and then Tribidrag is what it's called now. Yeah, so uh, glass one and two will be the Primitivo. The first one is ours from 2016 and then the second one which is actually in the wine club this month is from Puglia and this isn't really a fair uh, a fair comparison the one from Puglia is very fresh very bright um, not really barrel aged it's made to be just enjoyed and floral uh, the, ours was like 18 months in barrel so it's going to be going to be a little bit different but i think you get a little bit of sense of that sort of tar it has the fruit but a bit of herbaceousness to it hopefully like pepper leather kind of stuff no i'm not a primitiva i had a bad experience (laughs) (laughs) brian was there weren't you for primitiva night at the lair Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow! <laughs> catch up There's with you a story. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like it. Hopefully, nobody was harmed. Well, not permanently. Scarred. <laughs> Scarred. <yes. laughs> wiser, wiser. Got off the wrong foot. Then, just to wrap up that last section, uh, this is a list of wines that the CWA was offering in 1908. And again, just goes back to wines of type. Oh. You know, they, you're not seeing Barbera finest, or anything like fine. that. That's yeah. interesting. Finest Riesling. Good light <laughs> Fine, dry type. Why doesn't anybody say best? If they're going to go well, that Well, whoa, far. hey. Finest. Here's <laughs> finest. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be another 50 years until 
varietals came to mm. the forefront. And then we can kind of run these two tastings right up to each other. Uh, number three and number four are going to be more dramatically different. Well, actually, they might track a little bit differently. Uh, so Nebbiolo is the most frustrating grape on the face of the earth. Um, it is crazy vigorous. It doesn't have much color. It has high acidity. It has high tannin. It's a very virus vine that's very fragile. It's like the worst thing to deal with in the vineyard. And then in the winery, it's pretty challenging as well. And then it likes to age for, they say, leave it in barrel for three years before you taste it. Why bother? People like Because it's good Nebbiolo is amazing mm. and ethereal. And okay. it's like being kissed while being punched in the face. And it's just this, this dichotomy all coming together in one beautiful poetic moment. Okay. Yeah. So there are about 35 bottlings of Nebbiolo in California. Most of them are just a couple hundred cases, a couple barrels. Um, we have a little meeting. I don't think we're doing it this year, but for the last five years, uh, we Nebbiolo producers would get together and taste each other's wines for the day and talk about growing the grape and the problems we have with it and compare it to Italian what wines. Have you, and what have you found leave it in uh, yeah. a casket for five years or seven years? Sometimes that happens. Uh, eventually, if you leave, wood does breathe. Eventually, if you leave something in there long enough, it will start to oxidize. And that can be done intentionally. You know, old, so old ports, okay. things like that. But you'll see the color will change. It'll mm -hmm. start to take on that more, you know, um, I don't know, oxidized tone, that more like leather and some brown <clears throat> color. Gets a little bit maple syrupy, maybe. Mm -hmm. Those, that's part of where, where like a red wine will go from needing oxygen for tannin development and still being vibrant and then moving into the highly aged category. Right. It happens in bottle too, just much slower. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever had like a 30 year old bottle of something, it's kind of a similar process. Yeah, they're not always good. Yeah. <laughs> My experience with old bottles are not yeah. that great. Sometimes younger is better than too old if you have to gamble on one or the other. Mm -hmm. But there are you know, styles of ports that are left in barrel for 20 years, and the color starts to drop out, and they go okay. amber. And, but that, it's a stylistic but in, but in decision. But in Nebbiola, you, you figure three years is a good mark? Three years is sort of like a... I mean, you can do a fresh style, mm -hmm. a lighter, less tannic, just give it a fermentation for like three or four days. Um, that... Uh, Lower priced Nebbiolo, like right. Longue Nebbiolo, is often like that. It's made to be very fresh. But if you do a full dry fermentation with it, then it becomes a different beast altogether. You can make just about any grape kind of fresh, fun, and fruity just with a short, bright fermentation. Then you let it finish off the skins and bottle it quickly. And you can get some really pretty stuff out of that. This Primitivo is like that. This is a very fresh Primitivo that never went into a barrel. Um, so what year is this? Yeah, so with, with Nebbiolo, this gets interesting. Uh, the n number three is 2010, and this is this is the was the second Nebbiolo I ever made. This is an example of the more, for lack of a better word, 
sort of shrill lacking in body and depth style that California has a problem with. Mm. I'm being honest here. Um, so Lake County Nebbiolo, this comes from a little, this is before ours was planted, uh, growing, uh, growing at the foot of the Mayakamas in a cold pocket that gets frosted every year. This was one of the years it actually made it to some maturity. So three is his. The, this is the you're talking about? The, wait. Uh, number four is coming right now if you don't have it already. Uh-oh. Oh, wait. Sorry, sorry. Where am I? No, 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 go oh, ahead. I, at the last minute, I changed what we're pouring for, num for wine number four. Sorry. Oh, okay. So this is a bottle from my cellar. The best, the best California Nebbiolo I ever had, a uh, friend of mine named Paul up in the Sierra Foothills, Madronia Winery. Their wines are pretty hit or miss, you know. It's, it's like 3,200 foot elevation in the middle of nowhere on decomposing granite. It's hot, it's extreme. Uh, somehow, amazingly, he gets pretty good Nebbiolo from there. Where is he? So, uh, El Dorado, and that's so other side of California, that's heading up to Gold. That's what, that's what he's speaking about. That's, that's number four. He's up to Funzu. So, he's up to Yeah. So, it says Carosa Funzu. Yes. It, that's not what it is. It's oh. actually the Madronia. Okay. The Funzu is good, but what, it's just kind of basic. What year so. is this? Yeah. 2007. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is your favorite California vintage? Not that one. Not that vintage. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't, give, he wouldn't so give me my favorite it. vintage. And you wouldn't share it? No, I don't have it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but of course he would share it if he had it. I never, yeah, I would, I would love to share it. So no, excuse me, crack Italian. the bottle. Number three is Italian and number four is California? Or no, number three is ours from oh, Lake yes. County. So it's no Italian. And then there's no Italian in this particular one. Ah, uh, yeah. got it. But... Give you a little bit of an idea of the breadth of Nebbiolo and how finicky it is. Like these two wines are very different. Kind of similar age, kind of similar soils a little bit, but very different. Oh, and this is also, if, if anybody has any question about the minerality sensation in wine, which is a very confusing, kind of loaded term to use, uh, I, I, think to I think number four is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. That sort of buzzing, almost electrical liveliness. Yes. Now, how does, how does your 2010 Nebbiolo differ from the one that's on your current tasting menu? How would you describe the... Is that the 2016? Uh, yeah, the the current one I, is more aromatic, but much lower acid. Mm. I think if you could imagine number three in a riper form, mm -hmm. that would probably sort of sum it up. So I know that doesn't really answer the question. <laughs> the uh, yeah, Nebbiolo, the acidic core to Nebbiolo is super important. What? I don't know why. The acidic core, the sort of like acid backbone to it, and the way it sort of all hangs together is, it should be something that's like 
almost on the verge of falling over, but somehow does this beautiful <laughs> erect structural thing. And but, it has this really sweet long finish that's surprising. Mm, yeah, the finish I think is that minerality. And also somehow nobody quite knows yet. People like Randall Graham theorize a lot. But the minerality makes wines that age longer. That's one of the things with European wines and a lot of those soils and Chablis and, you know, that sensation. Whether it's the older vines, whether it's the rocks, whether it's the climate, whether it's actual minerals, those are all things that are debatable. But there's something about it that's pretty compelling, I think. Am I right to get kind of like an olive liquid? I think so. Yeah. It seems like that is a I don't know what uh, the barrel program is, if there's any barrel spice in here or not. We're through some. I'm drinking yours, man. I'm drinking yours right now. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. That does seem to be a Lake County thing. Yeah. Olive licorice, like leather, sort of like olive leather licorice. It does seem to be something that develops. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What did you make to call the green olives? Okay, so let's move on so everybody can make it home on time. So then prohibition happened. Pretty big bummer, uh, changing the course of a lot of things. Some areas, some areas just sort of pulled out all their vineyards. Really? Lake County had about 1,600 acres of grapes before Prohibition, and by 1960 was down to, I think, 80. And it was all just one block owned by Gwenock. So it kind of depended on what you were doing with the market. During Prohibition, planting increased in Southern California, shipping all that Zinfandel all over East Coast, up north. A lot of railway. The East Coast could drink? No. They, <laughs> they would ship grapes, and then no. they, they might accidentally ferment into wine. Accidentally <laughs> on the <laughs> way? Accidentally on the way. So there's no law against growing the grapes. Yeah. So. Medicinal, there were dried grapes, there were compressed grape uh, breaks <coughs> that would be labeled with a warning label, do not let ferment or yeah. add <laughs> to this. Do not, do not throw it so But here's how to do it. <laughs> And not, you know, those grapes were not surviving that journey very well. <coughs> I can't imagine that, you know, there was great wine going on. But, but, it, but didn't, it was wine. But it was so wine. It, you know. And it did not actually wipe out everybody and everything. The areas or growers or companies that were a little more agile were able to survive. Sort of changed up their business plan. Guasti, you know, in L.A., he was making a lot of jam and jelly at the same time, too. He was really sort of diversifying into whatever market might possibly have an opening to keep all those grapes in production. That's what my family did in upstate New York. Oh, yeah? Concord grapes. They switched over to Concord grapes. Mm-hmm. And then other things. I wonder, I wonder how those ship, actually. And there are a couple grapes that sort of became more popular with ship shipping, like Alicante Boucher, which has really oh, super yeah. thick skins. Yeah. Tastes like motor oil. 
yeah. sort of it's, it's charming in a way. But but Zinfandel is weird. Zinfandel has multi-sized berries, little tiny ones and big ones. Zinfandel can kind of nestle in without crushing. So it was actually shippable. And a lot of those vineyards managed to survive somehow, partly because of that fact. But wine consumption really changed after Prohibition. Wine, for the most part, I think I think it was like three to one dry, <coughs> red, dry wine bottles sold for each sweet bottle before Prohibition, and then it flipped afterward. Really? Yeah. So you're talking about everything being sold as Madeira, which is cooked and sweetened and, you know, the... the used, to, used in cooking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, real Madeira is amazing. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's not cheap, but it's you know super small production on top of volcanoes. Great for cooking. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. No, I. Trader Joe's Madeira goes into my mushroom dishes. I won't lie. Uh, but good stuff. Good stuff does Something sweet. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Some of the vineyards did survive, though. So you do have these odd little things like Louis Martini Barbera from 1954. Uh, Segazio, of course, had their little block of Sangiovese. They didn't pull it out. They just kind of like let it go. Grapevines are very hardy. They really, as long as they get enough water under this throughout the winter and it's not too incredibly hot during the summer, they can survive. So correct me, wasn't the prohibition about 10 years roughly? Yeah, it was 21 or something. 32. 1920, 1930. So when prohibition was over and people went back to growing grapes for wine, was there not the interest in buying wine in the 30s and 40s? Or? I think consumer consumption just changed hmm. what people expected from wine. I, you had changing immigration patterns, too. Yeah, you had the Depression and a war, too. So yeah, post-World War One. generation sort of missed the opportunity to you know, enjoy wine because it just wasn't... Well, key, no, key, key the, the war of World War One was over in 18, No, World War II. Two, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two. Yeah, that was coming it wasn't fast. Money to buy wine and, um, oh, that's true. The depression. Yeah, and then oh, in the 1940s, but, was, uh, but I'm not a, an expert on this, but it seems to me wine would have been cheaper than hard alcohol. The United States had more of a cocktail culture. Yeah, it was, it was a martini. It's it was very interesting. You're saying Nick, 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 uh, Nick and Nora in the Thin Man. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 martinis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's people that are wealthy. I'm thinking about the blue collar. <coughs> that's, the, that's the movies they watch. So I, yeah. But what was the blue collar class? I would think it's more beer culture. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. You get, have to remember that too. There are yeah, certain beer. Yeah, simpler than anybody can make beer. Then afterward. Yeah, beer was a you know was. Like it is now, back you know, 100 yeah. years ago, they're making all the little breweries and making their stuff, mm. and, stuff and it became Tams wow. and Schlitz. And yeah, of course, you so always had the consolidation legal alcohol, too. Yes, there was a lot of that. Yeah. Okay. And you also have certain ethnic groups attached to different drinks, and sometimes there are things that happen with that and public sentiment, depending on where you are. Right. So it's, it can be a complex issue. But, but, but the point is, why yeah. didn't take on that? It it's not like it disappeared. Just, but it wasn't until the seventies it started really rocking. It was yeah. It wasn't until things got kind of sexy and the Bordeauxization happened and it was in Utah. Okay. It kind of went into beverage format maybe. But that's for a only while. here in America. Did you try it? 
it wasn't that well, around the world. Well, I mean, you, you have wars going on in other parts of the world, you know, dec decimating Italian wine in some areas. It, it gets really complex. No, no, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. Geopolitics. Hmm. Never gave it a lot of thought, but I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, me either. So 40s, 50s, 60s, and this is where it gets interesting with the Italians because most of the prosperous companies that kind of survived and were arising were Italian-owned, but without any real interest in Italian grapes. I don't know if they were just kind of like good capitalists or what. But there didn't seem to be much ingrained allegiance to like right. a particular vision like there might have been pre-prohibition. Well, maybe that's in the perky parts of your life. If you're surviving, you yeah. survive. Yeah, there are good reasons for that, too. Yeah. My family was certainly all about assimilation. Sure. You know, they would do everything well, to I, not I, produce I, their I, names in an Italian yeah. way. And that's, that's fair. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Oh, wow. Yeah. All cultures did that. Yeah. They still do. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Asians still change no, their names when they come here. So many of them do. Yeah. First generation is never like the second generation, yeah, right? right? Never like the third generation. True. Sure. Yeah. Is this the era I can't speak. The, the big jug wine? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I had wine my grandmother kept on the, on the kitchen counter and didn't drink it for a month. Yes. Yeah. 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 That, that's a good thing about a jug. Almaden, Hardy, Burgundy, and just. Right. I remember the you know the lamb and the turkey and the all in the, the oh, label. Goodness. I thought it was yeah. Carlo Rossi. Yeah, I'm sure there were several Carlo Rossi Gala. Which is funny because yeah. Almaden actually had was one of the few places producing Chablis style Chardonnay mm -hmm. and Pinot Noir. There wasn't that much Pinot going on either. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it sort of all these companies sort of shifted production into a different format. And you also had a little bit uh, working out in Napa Valley, Andre Chalashev, you started seeing barrel aging, like small barrels, like what we think is normal today. That was not normal. And in fact, that's not normal in most wine regions. I do it because it's cheap. I can get a used barrel for 75 bucks, and it's a container. But, you know, Napa, Oaky, Velvet, Tannin, Spice, Vanilla, that's... That world we live in today, where if you go to CBS and every single wine tastes like that, that was not normal 40 years ago. Are most of the barrels fired on the inside? Yes. Or are they all fired? They need to be those, yeah, the, the sugars, the, the things inside, they need to go through some sort of toasting. But if you look through a barrel catalog, mm -hmm. you can get low toast heads with medium plus toast, thick bilge, fine stave, <laughs> five year age, three year age. But it doesn't have anything okay. to do with sandwich hair. Well, no, it does have an effect, but in fact, new barrels are dangerous because a lot of the microbes that sort of plague the wine industry, like Britannomyces, they can feed on those sugars inside the wood fibers. Ooh. Why do we use wood? Because it breathes. That's the thing. It kind of it lets the CO2 out. It kind of meters in a little bit of oxygen for red wine. So you have a barrel. You keep it for three years for the wine you're doing. What do you do with the barrel when you take the wine out of it? Uh, well, ideally, barrels are never empty. Maybe for a day, and that's about it. Really? So they're filled right away? Yeah, you want to always keep them full. Mm. Uh, if they're going to be stored, then you use sulfur dioxide. So if they're going to breathe, they can breathe underwater or under, you know, in contact with liquid. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. And Keeps it soft and pliable. Well, and you have microbes. Well, no, I was thinking about that, yeah. Yeah. 
And yeah, barrels are the worst part of wine. Like the most, you can't get inside of a barrel. It's the most dangerous part of everything. So we have a pretty strict, I use like a powdered hydrogen peroxide two day soak every year on all my barrels. On the outside Inside. Into the wine? Yep. Oh, just I want to try to okay. make sure nothing's living no, in there, no, pressure washing, steaming, all that stuff. Wow. Well. Yeah. Wait a minute, you, pre- you take the wine out, pressure wash it, and put it back in? Uh, after bottling. After bottling, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, I don't actually rack my wines very often, so okay. sometimes you'll move things from one barrel to another to leave the sediment behind or to give it a little bit of air. Yeah. Depends on what your style is and, yeah, and what you're, you're doing. Right. But you can, I fill my barrels with, if I have to store them for more than a week, with water, citric acid, and sulfur dioxide. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it seems to work. Uh, but yeah, wine is changing at this point. This is interesting, though, because this is where you get to the first point of varietal labeling. And ironically, you mentioned Almaden. Yeah. Mm. There was a writer working on the East Coast before World War II called Frank Schoonmaker. Uh, he published a couple of books. He went over to Spain dur- during World War II, and I, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was working on importing sherry <laughs> at the time. Again, a little more, a little more enterprising, that. swashbuckling kind of stuff. Um, but he was writing guidebooks to wine, 30s, 40s. And, yeah, and kind of had this vision as to where wine was going to be going over the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. And he ended up getting hired by Almaden and other, a couple other big wineries. I think he, in fact, he was a financial partner in Almaden. And he really believed that the future of American wine could not hinge on that identification of things like Hawk and Burgundy type hanging on European models. Mm. His antidote to that was labeling by the variety. So he was the first person to really... Which is what we do. Which is what we do. Was was that the future of American wine needs to differentiate itself from Europe at this Mm. point, become its own entity. And sure, there are a couple places where the, you know, Barbera de Alba, Mm -hmm. Barbera de Asti, there are examples, but they're in the minority a lot of the time. Mm. Um... But a lot of the big producers kind of started taking what he was saying to heart. Almaden was one of the first to, I can't remember what year, it might have been like 1952, it was a varietal Pinot Noir. Not 200 cases, I mean, it's not something that's taking the globe by storm, but you start seeing for the first time these things with the grapes on them. Yeah. Now, not understanding much about that you got here. 1952 mission was the fourth oh. most planted grape. So the mission grape, which the which the Spanish had brought into California, was still the fourth most planted grape in California at this point in time because that's how low the wine industry had so this fallen. Came from Spain, that yeah, in the 1500s. Oh, okay. But if every I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, Sacramento wine. But if everybody was focused on quality, there wouldn't have been any mission because it was deemed a terrible grape. So the fact that it was still the fourth most planted in California meant that something in the march toward like globally recognized varietal wine was going slightly, slightly off kilter. But I, if you're a farmer, you don't necessarily do what people tell you to do. If you're just... I grew up in the 70s, we sold bulk wine by the ton. You got $200 a ton. 
-hmm. sometimes a hundred dollars. All it had to do was meet the white stuff had to all be white and the red stuff had to all be red and you wanted it to reach about 13% sugar and then you were good to go. You get your check. Yeah, yeah. So it was a pretty simple thing. It didn't sure. necessarily matter what went into it. Where does the mission uh, stand now in terms of... There's very little in California. There's mm-hmm. there's a little bit still out there that, that's very much in demand, but the new, like, hip wine resurgence thing. Um, there's some out in Lodi and a couple other places. But it's not a real... It's not a contender yeah. on the... No. It's minuscule, like maybe 50 acres. There's probably some planted that we don't know about mixed in with some vineyard block. Yeah, well. <laughs> so what is it? What what is a red light? It's a light what? red. Light. It's a light, light red. red. I have trouble describing the flavors of it. Zesty. Zesty. Yeah, zesty. zesty. A light zesty. Zesty but plummy. Maybe, well, not but plummy, not, it's so, but it's not sweet. If you go to yeah. Oakland Yard over in uh, what street? Oh yeah, they probably have one. They've got a bunch of Pepino from Chile, which is the Mission grape, and they've got a bunch mm. of different bottles of it. You oh, can really see if you really want to just taste Mission, right here. Mission grape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's its own beast. I can't think of anything else that tastes like it. Yeah, it's weird. So it's, it's definitely worth trying. And it's great that some of these old plantings are being rehabilitated, and we're starting to see it. There's one, is that the one that's from 200-year-old vines? Yeah, it's super that, That's the one, okay. It's a Tory, that one that we had. Yeah. So, like, heirloom ancient vines from, was it Chile or Argentina? Chile. Yeah. And it has lots of names also, different regions. You know, they, they went all through southern and South America as well, so there might be five different names it goes by down there. It almost has a sour note to it. Yeah. It's, it's funky. It's like... It's funky. It's kind of like Nebbiolo, but way more weird. Yeah. Like it's, it's way funky. It doesn't have, a, it doesn't have the body of Nebbiolo. It's very bi- No, but I mean, like, the flavor profile is very bipolar to me. Yeah. Like, there are a bunch of things yeah. that shouldn't be coming it's together. It's got disparate elements to it. Yeah. I definitely have had, we've had the same bottle a couple times, like, the second or third time. I was like, oh, yeah, this is that wine I definitely like. <laughs> you have to be in the mood for a bunch Yeah, that makes sense. But definitely everybody should try it if you have it. It's part of your yeah, heritage. So, varietal labeling has started. Uh, Mandavi was actually kind of the person who really ran with that. Whether or not Mandavi was a good winemaker, he sure was a hell of a marketer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when he got on board and started running, it was it made a dent in the industry. Yes. So, so, 76, how did a Chateau Montalena Cabernet uh, make it to the judgment of Paris if, if this was just getting going? That's a good Well, I think this, I think, I would guess culturally the end of the 60s, early 70s, you're seeing a bit of a wake-up period, maybe, in food culture. Which is going well, yeah, to right. be related to wine yeah, as wine, well. The wine is sort of... It just appeared, you know. Like yeah, it seems like it came. It was, oh yeah, you can't call this. You can't call. Um, you know, can't call champagne. It's not champagne. It's sparkling wine. You know? Yeah. Right, you know? right. And I was getting my roommates from Napa, so I was getting this, this saturation of mm-hmm. here's what wine's all about, and it just came out to me. It came out nowhere. So Daryl Cordy's theory, when I asked him this question, was travel to Europe, being able to fly across 
quickly and come back, vacation, was sort of shifting food culture and wine consciousness along with it, kind of in that period of time. I don't know how literal that is, but it makes some sense. And, yeah, if you think about adventurous people loading up the station wagon and driving to Napa Valley in early 70s, late 60s, like, it was happening. Would you have five places to go? Yeah, yeah. Push your brothers, and but people were establishing themselves in the hill, the, the hills, the, you know, outside of Rutherford, Stag's Leap, of course. Stag's Leap. Yeah. Things started moving. Uh, whether or not European travel was the linchpin and all that seems decent. The Judgment of Paris was this little tasting that wasn't supposed to be super serious that had unusual outcomes that surprised the world. It was something marketable. It was something noble. You could actually... You had varietally labeled wines of a place beating what were the best French wines. Yeah. So that was a very important moment. It's too bad it wasn't a Nebbiolo doing it. <laughs> but you can't have everything. I, 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 think, I, think, I think it's the baby boomers and traditional world that, that yeah. it is what it is. The millennials can call us what they want. Yeah. But I think we really the wine through, through demand and appreciation. Mm -hmm. Really just, just, my parents had no idea what was going on. Yeah. I mean, I remember my parents, all of a sudden, they had a case of wine. You know, there was no wine in the house, and then all of a sudden there was a case. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, oh, what is, you know, and I didn't know what it was. Hmm. And they were, they were bourbon drinkers, and yeah. Yeah. all of a sudden after, there after was, the, the kids and, and, it, and as you speak, it was late 60s, mm -hmm. uh, it was basically late 60s. Yeah. So this whole conversation, we're, we're close in ages, but my parents didn't, they didn't drink wine. Mine, mine gave it a drink. Mine didn't. They had a cocktail. My parents drink drinkers. So Sunday dinner, it was a cocktail hour, and they had 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 a cocktail hour, and they my family. As you're speaking, it just dawned on me that the first time I recognized wine in the house was about that time, and mm. they didn't drink a lot, but there was some. But it there was and, there, and and for special occasions, they pull a bottle out. Wow. Yeah. You see, you're, you're right. Because later on, wine was always in the house. Yeah. It was old, younger. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember at school, uh, uh, my roommate his family was a winemaker, and I mean, we had wine, we had wine regularly at school. That's unusual. It just sort of, yeah. You know, we go, we go down to the wine and go to the broken case rack and just start pulling it out. I mean, we have these big jugs of, you know, whatever they didn't blend and or make as a varietal, they just had left over and they yeah. make. Here's, here's the bulk red and here's the bulk white. Yeah. And it's not, it's not necessarily all that different from the first time you had sushi or the first time first time you tasted Thai food. These sort of cultural currents where things start appearing and being present. It's just how 
confluence of forces. Yeah, I kept right. trying to find a conspiracy, but <laughs> I think shit just happened. I mean, it, it definitely was a shift. <laughs> well, that one is a conspiracy. My my thoughts of wine when I was a young guy, you know, teenager, was just to get drunk. And I didn't yeah. like I didn't like the taste of wine, so I didn't drink. And it was just it was, it was the cheap Chiantes that you would see, or the, or the Ripple, or whatever. Yeah, Ripple, Ripple, My family would drink jug wine and add Seven Up to it. But I'll tell you the, the best story. This is this is a quick diversion. 1967, Janis Joplin had a I don't think rented the beach down below Big Sur about 20 miles, a place called Lime Kiln Creek. And she wasn't going to do music, but it was a big happening, a huge party. Everybody came, and she bought, <clears throat> she rented Avis trucks and filled them full of wine. Wow. Red wine, and then she dropped Oh my. <laughs> Who's this she? Oh, oh, you were there? I was there, I was 16. <laughs> I was there, yes. yeah. I'm definitely there. That's what wine was. So that, that it was just it. a conduit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a conduit to get ripped. <laughs> And so, sometimes so the it whole is. Concept of it still was, can't be. Yeah. Pardon? I said it still can't be. It's a choose your own adventure it's kind of thing. It's always, it's always, no, it's always a concept, but yeah. it's nicer now. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have access to good wine. No. Yeah. And then, so I went to France when I was 19 and had amazing wines. So I was like, wine is amazing. Yeah. Well, until then, until then, like, we did, I didn't have access like, to decent Lancer's Rosé was like, oh, you got oh, answers. Oh, oh, yeah. You live without. <laughs> <laughs> so, not to reminisce too much. Okay. Uh, okay. So, so, glass one and two, yes. grape called Rafosco. Okay. Don't know it. So, northeastern Italian, plus a little bit Croatia and Slovenia. Okay. Yeah. Back when those test blocks were being planted in California by Hilgard. Rafosco kept appearing as one of California's most highly recommended grapes. It's a very flexible grape. If you grow it in cool climates, you can get a very spicy, peppery, kind of bright wine. It tends to have a little bit of bitterness to it, but it's in a savory sort of way. You could plant it Central Valley. You could plant it in warm climates and get a bigger, darker, richer wine out of it. Rafosco was catching on a little bit at the time, and uh, in Napa Valley in the 1890s, a guy named Henry Crabb outside of Yontville owned what today is Tokalon Vineyard, plus a lot of other stuff around it. He was another nurseryman planting all sorts of grapes, doing all sorts of different bottlings, involved in every aspect of agriculture, procuring cuttings to propagate. Crab's Black Burgundy was maybe not 100% Rafosco, but predominantly Rafosco winning World's Best Wine and the World's Fair, things like that, really starting to make a name for itself. And then somehow, Rafosco just sort of fell off the map a little bit. Later, after Prohibition, there's a whole interesting story I'll tell you in a second. And it got confused with a grape called Mondeuse, which is a French grape. And there are still accusations as to which side that falls on. Did the school make a mistake? Did the person who propagated the vines make a mistake? 
But what's important to know is that Rafosco is tasty. It's a little bit challenging. It has a little bit of metallic bitterness to it, and you can taste that in the Italian ones as well. Cooler climates, it can be very high acid, brisk almost, like sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but it can also make a pretty darn good wine. Wine number two, uh, did I get that down in time? Yeah, so the Primosic is number two. Number one is ours from 2016. Okay, and number two is? So number two is a Friulian Italian Rafosco. And this is on the more ripe side of the spectrum. They can vary quite a bit. I'm actually quite curious to try this one. But the interesting story, like I mentioned, uh, the UC system had seven different test blocks where they were planting everything in California. There was one down in Paso, uh, Tulare, is it Tulare County? Tulare. Yeah. Below, below Frozen. Yeah, there was a block there. There was Amador. There was Berkeley, just two miles from here. Serious block. That, that was Hilgard's home block, propagating and actually making all the wine there until all the the funding got cut. And that's part of the story. Isn't there a building there? Oh, yeah. It probably is. There's a street yeah, building account and there's a uh, street. UCLA. Yeah, they're UCLA. I was going to say, UC Davis has Hillgard Avenue. Is that the one San Pablo and Marin or something? That's where the stories are. I don't know. Oh, the stories are on Hillgard Avenue. Oh, really? So funding got cut for all these things. They were a pain to maintain. You had to send people far away. You were trying to ship grapes in the middle of summer as quickly as possible, record-keeping, pest control, all of that, and eventually they pulled funding. And they all just sort of disappeared. Uh, the one in Berkeley, I don't know, it's a parking lot? I'm not sure exactly where it was. Somebody knows. I, I don't know personally. Um, but there was this one vineyard, the Jackson Vineyard, up in the Amador foothills. In 1963, a plant pathologist named Goheen started poking around because he had heard that there was some weird rambling vineyard that these basically sort of squatters' rights had been involved in the property, and he wanted to go check it out. It was part of what part of his profession, and he thought it might be related to that test block of vineyard that had been abandoned for 60 years now, 60 plus. Hmm. Went up there, finally got the family to put the shotguns down. They let him go kind of like traipse around, and he realized that this was actually the growing block that, was, that had been monitored so closely for so long. And eventually, he was able to get 146 different varietals out of it. Wow. Out of this one little block. Is it still going on? You know, I'm actually... I'm inspired to find out. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'd like to go see it. Yeah. 63 in terms of time. Yeah, well, the forest had grown into it. Mm. Some of the vines had died, of course. Not everything is going to survive. But a surprising number had, and an abnormally high number of them were disease-resistant. So a lot of the things that we deal with, like red blotch and fan leaf and different aspects, the budwood was all amazingly clean. And then he had to back go back through the record and figure out, you know, that Sauterne type was this specific Sauvignon Blanc. 
which Mandavi then propagated, and that's where Fumé Blanc was based really? on those cuttings from the Jackson Vineyards. And then oh, the other most important thing would be Cabernet Clone 06, which was just in the Bordeaux-type block, so, which is probably the second most popular clone of Cabernet. Didn't exist until he found it up there, brought it back, wow. propagated it, was able to identify it, and yeah, pretty amazing. And up here, though, was where Rafosco and Monduce were confused. Wow. And whether that was his fault, whether it was the person who wrote the map, planted the vineyard, we don't know. But the two wines are somewhat similar, though. You can get this kind of similar aromatics out of them occasionally. But Rafosco is also a family of three genetically separated grape types. So Rafosco is very confusing. There, there are three different, three different forms of it, and they all have particular tendencies. Is that uh, Italian on the, or is that, you know, the Slavic info, is that I, yes. I see, you pronounce I-C-H? Mm -hmm. I think it's S-I-C. Yeah, but you, you said sh-sh-sh-sh-sh. Oh, that, that, I, that, I, that, 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 this, this producer, by the way, if you like this wine, they make quite a few different Friulian varietals, a couple orange wines, pretty good price. If you like tannic whites, like serious food whites, kind of edging towards like Georgian orange wine kind of things, you can find some pretty great ones for 25 bucks from them. It's when you make a, a white wine like a red wine. Wow. So you leave the seeds and the skins and mm -hmm, all that mm -hmm. in contact with each other. It's like a tannic white wine, but it picks up all sorts of really interesting aromatics and mouthfeel. Yeah, it's like a full-bodied white wine, you know, steak wine experience. I think you can have a glass of orange wine over at Sister Sister, at where? We Sister, you guys met everywhere. We've done the urban wine trip. Yeah. We do what we can. <laughs> but it's, uh, it used to be food and shoe service, and uh, uh, the, they took over the ownership. Oh, on Grand? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Nice. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're still in business? Happily, yeah. They changed it. The new owner. Yeah, new owners, I think. Uh, what has taken it over mm -hmm. instead of the original family. And I haven't been there since that happened. It's, it's, not, it's, it's very it's playful and has more influences, more local cuisine than it did. Yeah, it's not, it's not quite mm. Italian anymore. Yeah. It's kind of everything. But it's fun. Yeah, it's cool. very fun. Yeah, that sounds good. So we get to the 70s and things start moving. When it comes to Italian varietals, though, not that much was going on. Yeah, the post Paris tasting, suddenly Cabernet's in the spotlight. Napa Valley is starting to develop. Remember, in 1970, Napa Valley was still like 70% Petite Syrah. It was always known that Cabernet did well in Napa Valley, even 100 years ago, but it wasn't the thing until that just totally went bonkers. 
Uh, Spring Mountain in Napa Valley, I think at the same time, was still 75% Zinfandel. I, I dare you to find Zinfandel on Spring Mountain. <laughs> so these things change quickly. They really do. Surprisingly, how can it? Yeah. Well, we, we saw just seven years ago everybody planting muscat just in time for it to collapse in the marketplace. Okay. These, these cycles move rapidly. They really do. Um, as far as Italian varietals in California, though, Daryl Cordy, who is basically a grocer in Sacramento, mm. but he's considered probably the walking encyclopedia of food and wine of the world. Pretty amazing guy. Um, Daryl Cordy. He owns Cordy Brothers Market out there. If there's one wine club to join, his would be it. Mm. Where is this one? Napa? Sacramento. Sacramento. Sure. Wow. Yeah. surprising. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of a dump. I mean, it's like an old, rundown. You're kidding. Grocery? Walgreens, or well, no, just like the building, the area. Oh, the building. You walk into it. Why would you want to join this one? It's got the best, best ones. (laughs) Really good stuff. So are you a member? He he, what? I don't join. Oh. I will someday. Okay. No, I just can't right now. I'm running a business. Uh, <laughs> I don't eat out either. So. Oh. Yeah. We'll get there. We'll well, you're get a there. wonderful chef, so that oh, evens out the balance. <laughs> we'll get all the components together soon. The old saying is you have to pay to play. Yeah, exactly. Um, Daryl Cordy was the gateway to several things happening, one of which was Dick Cooper planting Barbera up in the Amador foothills. The area was always known to be quite good for Zinfandel, but it was Cordy who actually recommended that Barbera be planted there instead of Dolcetto. Daryl Cordy was also going back and forth to Italy a lot, and he would bring over some of these famous Italian winemakers. Antonori would drive around in the car with Cordy tasting all the wine up and around the valley. And several other people, too. there was a little bit of interest over Sangiovese starting to grow at the time. Um, Daryl Cordy was involved with, uh, oh, I just blanked on the name. There, there's a producer up in Amador who only produces Sangiovese. Oh, tiny bit. No, uh, but Montevino was dedicated until being bought by a large corporate entity. Uh, two Italian varietals planting Nebbiolo, Barbera, Sangiovese. Special clones of Sangiovese. I think they even had Grignolino and Adianico, the last thing we'll try tonight. Um, but there was sort of this resurgence happening as well as the wine industry is sort of exploding out of this slumber. And even, yeah, Barbersville, Barbera going in. So even in other states, there's sort of this re- re-emerging interest in wine, what it can do, what you can plant, and what will work well. In Southern California, in Paso, Caparone started planting a few Italian varietals in the 80s. That would be the first Alianico in California. One of the interesting things is for the number of Italian, there's Southern Italians that came to California, and it's like most of them, especially around San Jose. We didn't have any Southern Italian grapevine cuttings growing anywhere. So kind of fascinated by that question. I know my family wasn't thinking like that. They weren't thinking like heritage grab cuttings when we come over. 
so things were probably a little more desperate than that. But it, it's hard to believe, though, that for all this northern Italian stuff, that nothing from southern Italian was planted until 15, 20 years ago. When you have half a million southern Italians coming in. Oh, Vino Nocetto, sorry. Sangiovese specialists in Amador. Yeah, and Daryl Cordy was involved in that. This was also the time when Barbera started becoming what we taste in the glass today as well. Part of that was the guy whose name I can't remember, Daryl Cordy, and he drove around, tasted a couple of Barberas, including, I think Krug was the only one at the time, something like that. So fully ripe, full-bodied, dark, had been through malolactic fermentation, balanced a little bit of barrel aging, and it was a revelation. He went back and started doing the same thing there. In the 1990s, that interest in Sangiovese kind of became a disaster. Uh, Piero Antonori, really famous Tuscan winemaker, uh, lots of global interests, uh, partnered with Mondavi a little bit, but he had several uh, spirits companies kind of come in on this deal to plant Sangiovese up in Atlas Peak and make Super Tuscan, Calatau was going to be the next big thing, the next Cabernet. It really failed badly and kind of tarred and feathered the, the whole Calatau term, which, and you know, I was having that thrown in my face in 2014 still. We don't like Calatau's here. Calatau's don't work. We don't, we don't buy Calatau's. Oh. So that's how that's how long the reverberations lasted from that. So I don't want to point fingers, but there might be a little bit of arrogant, uh, overly. It's just everything was wrong about it. It was the wrong place. He planted the wrong clones. Like just everything that could be wrong, they did wrong up there. And then Mandavi started his own label, specific. I think it was like Familia de, de Mandavi, which also made shitty wine for six years and then disappeared off the face of the earth <laughs> from Italian varietals. And it really kind of created a big hiccup as far as moving the whole Italian thing forward as peripheral to the general wine explosion. Are we all poured up? Okay, awesome. Home stretch. Uh, but there are a couple other bright spots. Uh, in Mendocino, there's a vineyard called Fox Hill that is all Italian varietals, three different types of Nebbiolo, this beautiful west-facing slope that actually bakes a little bit in September, but <laughs> Nero Divola, Negro Amaro, all suitcase clones, all little cuttings that the guy brought back, had propagated, and then spread. It's in, it's in Mendocino? Or in Mendocino Mendoc County. Where, yeah. Where, what where area? Uh, Talmadge, just north of Talmadge, but south of Ukiah. Wow. Along Old River Road. So it's really impossible to know what a cutting, what a, what a. You kind of know where you, where you got it from. Yeah. And you hope it's. And the top is one thing, the bottom is another thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, then there's that as well. But some of this stuff wasn't it done up in the higher elevations and dry farm too? Or I mean, there's. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, a lot of things were dry farmed by necessity, and. You know, some things can be improved with a little bit of water once or twice a year, so especially for the longevity of the vine. So dry farming is great if you can do it with healthy vines. It's hard to do in warmer regions with long summers or lean soils. So we hope to do it one day. We get a little bit closer every year. It's a process. So I, I think the non-tea in 
Sicily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they they're all dry farming. Yeah. yeah, yeah, different. Yeah, different climates. You can do different things, and the trend now is to pick earlier. So that takes a little bit of pressure mm-hmm. off that last stretch of ripening the grapevines have to go through as well. So just kind of depends stylistically on what you're trying to do and the age of the vines. You need older vines to do it. You can't just plant uh, young vines for the first ten right, years and like cut the arid, water. Yeah. Uh, vines. Mm-hmm. It's all yeah, and if you go like to Bedrock Vineyard out in Sonoma Valley, which is 130 years old now, they've got drip lines out there now because it's helping keep mm. those vines alive. They're they're at that you know the vascular systems have constricted and they're hanging on and it's so they're it's helping the vines. It's 100 130 years old. Yeah, yeah. they're well seasoned. What is yeah. the long oldest known? They're shriveling. Uh, surviving. It's a stent. There is a <laughs> there's a Gruner Veltliner vine and oh, an yeah. Arianico vine. I can't remember which is older, but they're in uh. like the 230, 200. And they're still producing, still yeah. producing a good quality. So is the Gruner in well, Austria, Austrian? <laughs> I think so. Yes, I think it is Austrian. And then there's the Involture. There's a super old Arianico vine that's like looks like an oak tree. Okay. a hundred feet. So they're not quite like olives which can literally go oh, thousand years mm-hmm. sometimes, but still pretty remarkable. Can they still be cloned, too? Yeah. That's the cool part. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Um, so, yeah, these little things pop up. Uh, George Varr planting Rebola in southern Napa Valley. That was very weird. Couple rows here. Julia who? Uh, a guy named George Varr. Yeah, he kind of became a local celebrity for it when Ribola Giala became famous a few years ago. He has passed away recently. Um, yeah, little pockets popping up here and there. Now Dry Creek has several different Alianico, Sagrantino, all these things that we're just starting to do, or you know, everybody else is doing them too. That's just normal. Uh, so the last two glasses that you have, number three and number four. Number three is our Alianico that we're currently pouring. Super good. Thank you. Number four is Ifavadi's Torasini, and I think. I, I like this producer a lot. Um, this is probably a good example of the California versus old world difference, mm. though. Mm. And Alianicos can be can be fuller bodied than this. And in fact, in southern Italy, there's a lot of diversity stylistically in Alianicos. Some of them are like overripe California style, oak aged. Other ones are pretty lean. This looks that's exciting. Too old. This has a lot more aroma than okay. yeah. And where are they growing this? Is this like Calabria? <clears throat> um, Basilicata and Campania mainly. Calabria has there are a lot of really unique indigenous grapes there that they're. I, I'm sure there's a little bit in there, but. doesn't grow in right? I'm sure somebody has planted a little bit of it, but it's. Uh, in Basilicata Volture, which is sort of like across mm-hmm. from Sicily, that's as close as it gets. And historically, it's been there for a long time. Alianico is one of the true ancient grapes of the world, being at least. Like, people lie, you know, about stuff, but it's pretty clear Alianico has been around for at least 2,000 years. Wow. Probably much longer. You ever heard of a wine called Valeron? 
ancient ancient Roman wine. Yeah, like a, a not Falernian or oh, Falernian. Falernian. Yeah, yeah. Is and the one Brutus drank? Uh, I want to see uh, Caesar wouldn't drink, but uh, <laughs> everyone else did. What was the one? What was the ancient wine guys that was in not this past club, but the like December club? It's a Greek wine. Oh, Limnios, the Limnion. Mm. So I think the claim on that one is that that is the oldest grape still in production. Mm. I can pull out this sheet and I can't remember what it says, but maybe like 1,500 years ago, something like that. Or 1,500 BC. <laughs> Sorry, not 1,500 years ago. So 3,000? Yeah, potentially. Wow. They found grape seeds, grape DNA going back to about 9,000 BC. In caves. What's the town that got covered from uh, the suit? Uh, yeah. Didn't they find a bunch of stuff? Oh, yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, and actually, one of the main producers of Alianico, Master Berardino, is trying to propagate Pompeian vines from the site. That he, wow. They, they have like, it's a $200 bottle. It'll certainly be rich in minerals. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think the first couple, he tastes, tastes volcanic. He's oak aging it. So the reviews haven't been very positive yet, but I'm curious. He, he thinks he's isolated two things from the outer periphery of the town that actually were what they were growing there at the time. I can't remember what the names are, but fascinating project. Thing to know about Alianico, it needs very little water. It's very heat tolerant. It really is a survivor vine. It's a little bit finicky, and it doesn't produce a whole lot, and it's very late. That makes it easy, right? You don't have to prune it. But it's very mildew sensitive. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, and actually ours, it has a lot of... <clears throat> when you buy a grapevine, they're supposed to be disease-free. They all go through this testing thing, and they try to get all the all the viruses out of them. And then you plant something, and clearly it has disease. Like, no. And the, the Alianico has a lot of issues. Where does the Alianico grow best in? Uh... I have some friends making really good Alianico in Paso Robles. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So those warmer climates. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to forget that Italy has a lot of limestone underneath all that volcanic stuff in some areas. It's a grape that likes limestone as well as doing well on acidic volcanic soils, which is unusual. Um, but it's working for us. Uh, Caperone was the first one. Segazio started making an Alianico in night, I think I have it here, 1997 maybe? Um, and it's really good. Hmm. Uh, Ted gave me a bottle of it. It's, they, and they I think still it's, make it? They're still making it, mm -hmm. yeah. A small two-acre vineyard block. I think it only goes out to the wine club, mm -hmm. but you might be able to get a bottle if you go to the tasting room. Mm -hmm. Very small production. They hold it for five years before they release it. It's, it's sort of in between these two. It doesn't have quite the, the wide body that ours does. Mm -hmm. But you still see that like more lean, acid-driven, mm -hmm. old-world style in it. It's actually really well made. Mm. Um, I was pretty impressed when I saw it. Uh, Benacere makes some in kind of mid-Napa Valley. It's meh. It's good. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad people are doing it. There are there is some up in Amador. Uh, Vincent Arroyo made a Sangiovese. I mean, a Sangiovese. Yeah, yeah, they make a Sangiovese. Mm. Yeah, Napa had. There's like Luna, uh, Pepe. There's still some Sangiovese knocking around Napa Valley. Actually, for sure. some, some years it's very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's decent. Is there yeah. a, 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 a 
plant that grows better in wet soil? There are some. There are some, A, there, there are rootstocks you can use for that, and then there are some vines that they, we, we say in the industry, they, they, they like or don't like wet feet, because <coughs> sometimes you have what standing kind of water situations. What kind of, what would it be? What would it be? Because that's like the opposite of what I deal yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. Um, like ripple? <laughs> no, no. I, no, I, I, I actually yeah, I'm serious. I, serious yeah, no, I, there are thousands of different grapevines, all with different needs. I, I I would be thinking about something less hillside and more, um, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So so you're up in Lake County. How many mm -hmm. different vintners are there up there? Well, there are... I mean, I never think of going over the hill. Yeah, but there are about 40 wineries. Yeah, it's, coming, it's up and coming. 40? It's, it's up and coming, yeah. There are about 13,000 acres of grapes, though, and if you drive over from Calistoga go over the mountain and then drive through Middletown and up to the lake, you will see right now a thousand acres being cleared and then a 5,000 acre planting. And most of that is people from Napa. And, and I assume there, it's not necessarily the Bordeaux or traditional Napa varietals there. Oh, Cabernet is... Cabernet, yeah. Andy Beckstoffer, who's one of the more I'll famous growers, yeah. he is betting the farm on Lake County Cabernet. Really? Thousands of acres. Well, global warming is, of course, getting thousands of acres. Thousands. thousands? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, like, Washington State Cabernet is going to be fantastic in about 80 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Washington, it depends on where you are in Washington. Washington can get pretty we'll darn warm. We'll great tequila. Yeah. Well, if we yeah, wait long enough in Nevada, maybe you know, shoreline. <laughs> I, I will say if you want to try like a really good $30 Cabernet from Lake County, yeah. find Obsidian Ridge. Obsidian? Yeah. OB, that's Obsidian. Like the rock, Obsidian. Yeah, like, like the rock. A, okay, we are on it. Yeah. Obsidian Ridge. Yeah, that one's, I think, really good. Oh. And shows the potential. And it'll only get better as the vines get older and things get fine-tuned a little bit. So. And where, and where in Lake County is Obsidian Ridge? Uh, they're in the Red Hills AVA, which is probably the, the sexiest neighborhood to be in. Mm -hmm. It's just rocky. Everything's above 1,800 feet up to 3,200 feet, so it's high altitude. So all hillsides. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's the thing. That's, no you, no want, you want those more grueling sort of soils, yeah. but it's also <clears throat> a double-edged sword. So, like, this year there was a lot of frost damage before grapes uh, were picked yeah. at those high altitudes when, when things get cold. And the ripening, you know, it's mm. everything gets weird. The higher you go, the more mm. delicate the balance yeah. is. And mm. Pietro, in terms of future Italian varietals here, I, I feel like I just recently became acquainted with Vermentino. Oh, yeah. Is that something that would so, translate well? Yes. So Vermentino uh, grows all over France as well, mm. and several mm. of the islands. Um, it's often blended. It's called roll and other things. Vermentino is all over Italy, though, and actually in Tuscany as well. And it's Vermentino, actually, it should be the grape of the future. It loves to do the heaviest crop possible. It's bright and crisp. You can do a little bit of skin contact with it and get something a little more ample and interesting. <clears throat> Some producers like uh, Tablas Creek are starting to oh, yeah. sort of bet the farm on Vermentino production. Mm. The, uh, the Tokai Friolano that we pour here, uh, right now, Greg Graziano, who grows that, is 
grafting that over to Vermentino right now. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Because it'll produce three times more and be easier to make, easier to sell. Which yeah. one was that? Uh, it's not on the list. It's a it's a white wine. Oh, awesome. Called Vermentino. Great food wine. You can drink it on its own. You can make sparkling wine out of it. It's it's and it likes heat. That's the thing. It's grown in those like coastal southern areas and down into warmer areas of Italy. It's something instead of Chardonnay that California should be planting everywhere instead. So. Is this your to-do list now? Oh yeah, just a couple things to mention oh, as far as grapes that we should be on the lookout for. Um, Southern Italian whites, things that can take a lot of heat, things that can take leaner soils. Fiano, Greco, Falangina, each has their own sort of niche that they could mimic something else in. Falangina is like super crisp, almost Sauvignon Blanc-ish. Uh, Greco is kind of weird and wacky. Yeah. Multipuciano is a white grape. I'm sorry? Multipuciano is a white grape? Red grape. That's what I, I have the same question. So Montepulciano is either the second or third most planted red grape in Italy, depending on where you're counting it. So is it planted here now? There's only a little bit of it. Again, it's finicky in the vineyard, but it makes round, full-bodied, dark, Yes. Wines okay. that get really interesting so, so with it's age. Used as a blend? It's often blended with Sangiovese. You'll you'll see in uh, Marquet and um, what's the region right next to Marquet? Just forgot. Abruzzo. Those are the two main areas for it. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's a grape with tons of potential. I've made it from three different vineyards. And each one turned out great in its own way. Mm. It's not a reflection on me, just it's a grape that mm. it's kind of like all a rustic Merlot used. without, because Merlot's actually really hard in the vineyard. It, it's, really? Yeah, it's super finicky, super touchy. Merlot? Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, getting good Merlot. Mm. You can make baked out cherry donut Merlot. <laughs> That's not that hard to you do. You just lost me there. <laughs> but, but getting like real compelling Merlot is it's a tough one. But yeah, Montepulciano no likes heat, doesn't need that much water. And then Sagrantino, we'll see if that will be in California's yeah. future or not. It's being more finicky than I anticipated. I like the Falangina. I think I had it at an Italian restaurant. Ah, like, yeah, nice and crisp, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of stony. Yeah, and, yeah those are all great. So many varietals. And with that, we're done. Uh -huh. There you go. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Very enjoyable. A lot to learn still. So you don't do any white Italians? The only white grape we have planted is Chardonnay. And that was that was pre-existing on the property from 1990. What kind of wine? Chardonnay. Oh, Chardonnay? It's a good Chardonnay. It's a good Chardonnay, yeah. I'm still fascinated by Chardonnay from what you said because it's not that old of a wine. There's pretty broad stylistic differences in Chardonnay, too. Even in France, you can get ripe, fuller body. You so know. in Burgundy, they weren't making Chardonnay 500 years ago? Is it newer? I think Chardonnay... Do they even call it that? They I think they call it Burgundy. Yeah. yeah. Call it what? White Burgundy, but it's... it's White Burgundy. I think I saw maybe 1300 being yeah. the first so record. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of these cool. things spontaneously mutate, and then somebody plants some cuttings from something else, and then it starts to spread. I just know in the late 70s and through the 80s, Chardonnay just 
Blues is rough in California. Yeah. 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 Well, it still is Literally. the most splendid white well, every, yeah. every mother loved it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Chardonnay. Kendall Jackson made oh. fortune. Yeah. Off of their Chardonnay. Oh. Rombauer makes it like like it's beer. It's like it's Saint Clair every year. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've, I've talked to the people making that. There, there's a lot of skill and craft that goes. I mean, it's easy to be like, you know, cuckoo juice. Let's make it like last year. But yeah, those, those are hundreds of lots that they're dealing with to construct. Uh, yeah. construct yeah. You go to Rombauer and you get the California, you go right across the street to Fela, and you get more of the traditional French. Oh, yeah. That's good stuff. I did discover that one of the fun places to go buy wines are in Sonoma, like Safeway.